girls are complicated. Welcome to episode 50 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Marie Haas, and with me today are Heather Elliott Neal and Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Hello, Heather and Victoria. Hi. Hello. So let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the show. Um, so, Heather, let's start with you. Well, hi, I'm Heather Neal. I live in Texas. I have a PhD in English with a, a specialty in children's literature. Uh, and in fact, I would say sort of the PhD is the least of my investment in children's literature and children's culture. It's something that I'm sort of passionately interested in on a, on a personal as well as a professional level. Oh, thanks, Heather. Um, and this show uh, episode topic was really Heather's idea, so we owe it to her that we're dealing with My Little Ponies, which I'm uh, My Little Pony, which I'm very excited to do today. Um, okay, Victoria. Hello, uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, you've probably heard me before if you've ever listened to this show. I'm one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, I have a PhD in Renaissance Lit from Florida State University, and uh, I am currently working as a postdoctoral fellow at Public Radio International in Minneapolis. Thanks. And I'm Marie Haas. I'm also a regular panelist for the show. And I'm moderating today's episode, though, like I said, actually a lot of the planning for it, the idea for it comes from Heather. Um, and I also have a PhD in early modern literature from Florida State University. Um, I'm currently uh, working on a master's in religion uh, with a focus in women's gender and sexuality studies at Yale Divinity School. So I'm living up here in Connecticut with my spouse, Jonathan, and two cats, one of whom is sort of circling the computer right now. So if a meow happens to interrupt the program, that's where it's coming from. And um, I, yeah, it's been a lot of fun watching My Little Pony <laughs> with uh, Jonathan sort of walking around the house and gets uh, the theme song stuck in his head. So there have been um, some earworm spousal sacrifices made for the sake of the <laughs> Christian Feminist Podcast. Um, okay, so that's the introduction. So for this episode, here's the topic. We're talking about the children's show, My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. Um, and it's a show that's uh, supposed to have some sort of feminist motivation behind it. And it's become well known partly for the unexpected demographics of some of the show's most vis visible fans, uh, bronies. And in preparation for our discussion of the show today, we've uh, focused on five episodes from the first season. Um, these are episodes one and two, titled Friendship is Magic, parts one and two. These episodes establish the premise and the major characters for the show. We also focus on episode six, titled Boast Busters, which provides a twist on 
the traditionally feminine virtue of humility. Um, also episode 19 called A Dog and Pony Show, which plays with the damsel in distress trope. And episode 26, The Best Night Ever, which is the season finale and takes on your classic, you know, night at the ball narrative. Um, also in preparation for the show, we've read an article on Wired from 2014 that deals with the origins of the brony subculture and speculates on how it relates to our definitions of masculinity. Um, that article is by Angela Watercutter, and it's titled, Bronies are Redefining Fandom and American Manhood, and um, it'll be linked in the show notes so you can find it there. So for the first part of the show today, uh, the knowing section... We'll get some background on the show and discuss our general impressions of it, um, including our discussion of that, that two-part first episode. Then in the reading, or in this case, reading-slash-watching section of this episode, we'll get into some of the particulars of My Little Pony Season 1, Episodes 6, 19, and 26, and then also discuss the article on bronies. Um, so to get us started, Heather, would you... Tell us a little bit about My Little Pony and maybe something about how it fits into this area of your passion and expertise, children's literature or children's culture. Yeah, thanks, Marie. Um, so I think uh, I'll sort of start with, with the second half of that first and talk a little bit about why um, when Marie came to me and asked if I would like to do an area or uh, a topic-based kind of in my area of specialty, um, I, I chose something out of children's culture rather than something out of children's literature proper. And I think that if you look at what American children are consuming today, television is really important for almost all of them. Uh, books still have a very real presence, I'm happy to say, uh, but books and television are increasingly intertwined as are toys and, and really all of the facets of marketing to children are increasingly interdependent because the franchises have figured out, right, that the more you use one platform to promote another, the more it sells. And it's always, when we're dealing with children's culture, it's actually always very important to remember the financial motivation that's behind all of it. And I don't know how much we'll, we'll really talk about that tonight, but it's a good thing uh, sort of just to keep in mind. Uh, and in fact, My Little Pony Friendship is Magic is a, a reboot of an older My Little Pony show that some of you may remember uh, from the 80s. It has, however, uh, I think been much more successful, the show in particular. I'm not sure about the stats on the toy sales. Uh, just to give you all a little bit of uh, sort of a general information about the show, uh, for those of you who have not yet experienced the, the pleasure of watching it. Uh, the show follows the adventures of six friends who are ponies. They live in the magical kingdom of Equestria, which is ruled by the benevolent Princess Celestia. Uh, each of the six friends who are referred to in the fandom as the main six, right, with a little uh, homonym pun on main, uh, represents a particular type. So we have Twilight Sparkle, who is the scholarly slash wizard of the bunch. Uh, we have Rainbow Dash, who is the athlete. We have Rarity, who is the super feminine fashion designer. Uh, we have Applejack, who is the uh, hardworking farm girl. 
We have Fluttershy, who, as her name suggests, is very timid, uh, but also very good with animals. And then we have Pinkie Pie, who is the quintessential party pony. Uh, okay, Marie, do you want me to, to go ahead into large-scale impressions, or do oh. you Victoria respond? Or? Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you for that background and the overview of the the main six. Um, the breakdown into types is really helpful, I think. Um, so, yeah, what are your, your impressions about the show in general? Then? Uh, so I have to confess, I am a wholehearted My Little Pony's Friendship is Magic fan. Uh, I was introduced to the show by an adult friend who did not have children. I also at that time did not have children who said, this show is great. You have to try it. I was highly skeptical, uh, but it was on Netflix. So I thought, Hey, why not? And I, I tried it and I got hooked. Um, it is a very, I think, uh, it's a show with a very positive vibe to it. Um, it's a very traditional children's show in that each episode is kind of uh, formed around sort of a moral lesson that children are intended to take away. Um, and uh, I think all of that perhaps appeals to me and to certain biases that I have about, and I sort of do believe that children's entertainment, while it should absolutely entertain them, should also be sort of good for them and wholesome in some way. Um, and But what I particularly liked about My Little Pony, as opposed to uh, some other instances of children's shows, is that uh, it is about girls from beginning to end. It's not that there are no male characters on the show, uh, but the focus really is on, on the girls, on their friendships. Uh, this show passes the Bechdel test with sort of flying, flying, flying colors. Um, and it really tackles gender, st gender stereotypes in some interesting kinds of ways. And it doesn't always feel the need to sort of uh, uh, tear them apart. And, and sometimes, you know, I like that. Sometimes I wish that they were a little less conservative in some ways. Uh, but the show frequently surprises me. And I think perhaps that's maybe what I like about it best of all, is that uh, there's a lot of really smart writing going on. So I'll open it up to somebody else now. Thanks. Yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, I appreciate its smartness and funness also. And um, well, let's go on to you, Victoria. What what were your general impressions of the show? Um, I I thought it was fine. I I don't think I'm going to watch it in any serious way um, now after doing this podcast. Um, though there were a lot of good things about it. Um, I. I do think that I, I want to echo what Heather said about this being a, a girl friendship centered show. I think that's really positive um, and good. I also like um, the the virtues represented by um, by the Stones of Harmony are um, I, I think mostly feminized or feminine virtues. Um, Okay, so one of the things central to the two-part first episode is the idea of the um, the mythology surrounding the Stones of Harmony, which are these six stones that work together, um, not unlike an actual medieval alchemical formula, which was interesting to uh, me and my 
Renaissance lit degree. Um, but the six stones represent uh, six virtues, and they are, uh, each virtue is connected to a pony. They are um, honesty, which is Applejack's virtue, kindness, which is Fluttershy's virtue, laughter, which is Pinkie Pie's virtue, generosity, which is Rarity's virtue, loyalty, which is Rainbow Dash's virtue, and magic, which is uh, Twilight Sparkle, kind of the central heroine's virtue. And uh, I think that that's um, that's a pretty interesting thing because not only are um, all of these things often feminized virtues, uh, some of them I think can also be considered feminine vices in an interesting way. Um, like honesty could also read as women talk too much. Um, generosity could also read as women being too vulnerable. Um, these kinds of things. Uh, so I, I think it's interesting that, that these virtues are lauded um, because they're, they're often feminized in society and also that it's really great that um, the way the stones of harmony work are all together. So these this group of women can't really uh, reach the pinnacle of their power until they combine their individual um, their individual specific strengths to the same purpose. And I think that's a that's a really powerful message, particularly in our current society, which likes to tell women that uh, the way the world is is that women just backbite and compete with each other. So I um I'm I'm definitely pro um, the ponies message in that regard. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Um, and uh, I hadn't thought about the way that the the feminized virtues represented by the stones of harmony could also be taken as the Vices, so it's an interesting um, switch up on that. Um, do little bit have... of little bit of Aristotle, uh, vi <laughs> vices and virtues are connected. Yeah. <laughs> um, do we have anything else we want to talk about the plot uh, points from episodes one and two? I think we could just uh, point out that the founding or the opening episodes of season one really do establish uh, this this theme of friendship um, and that togetherness, right. Uh, as, as Victoria points out, collaboration is not only necessary to achieve sort of one's own peak potential, uh, but in fact, it's necessary for any kind of health at all. Uh, the plots of, of these two episodes, which are um, it's a two part story uh, is that nightmare moon who is this sort of evil sorceress pony, has escaped from her imprisonment and is taking over Equestria. And it is revealed that Nightmare Moon is actually the sister of Princess Celestia, who is the ruler of uh, this magical kingdom of Equestria. And so the, the six ponies have to come together and find their stones and their virtues and defeat her. In fact, in order to restore a broken sister relationship. And only when both friendship and sisterhood are restored uh, can the kingdom return to a state of health. Yeah, so when it comes to that moral that you were talking about, Heather, that you get at the end of every episode, basically, the, the moral that's set up in these first two episodes and, and so for the show as a whole is this need for friendship and this communal 
working together like you're talking about victoria um and that's i mean that of course is like central to the show and it's something that struck me as i was watching this the first season of the show is how focused it is on that that on community and on female community, especially like both of you are pointing out. Um, and I want to come back to what you were talking about, Heather, about a Bechdel test, because I think that's a really important point. Um, and uh, I think it goes along with, well, actually my impressions of my little pony is that it fits in with um, some of the issues we've discussed in a bunch of previous episodes on a Christian feminist podcast. But uh, one of course, uh, is when we were talking about women in film in episode five, and we talked about the Bechdel test, um, which is, of course, uh, the, the test is whether or not is something like an episode or a movie or a piece of literature, whatever it is, includes you know two female characters with names who talk to each other about something besides a man. Um, so just by the nature of how this show is set up with there being just the, the like the six main female characters all being female and them doing the vast majority of the action having the majority of the conversations in the show and with pretty much every major authority figure in the first season at least um all being female like princess celestia the mayor of ponyville um even granny smith um and also a lot of the antagonists or even the possible antagonists uh, are female with the exception of a few mythical beasts um, and a few dogs, which we'll get to later. Um, so, yeah, so the likelihood just by the from the, the way the show is set up is that any person who's discussed in, in a conversation among the main characters is generally not going to be a male. Um the exception being Spike, who I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about a little later. Um, so we have the show Bechdeling all over the place. Um, and that, I think, is is a really cool aspect of the show. And of course, like we've discussed in previous episodes, that passing the Bechdel test isn't you know necessarily feminist in itself. Um, but it is important to consider how, how rare this really is in our media. Um, or in, you know, our literature and our foundational works. So, I mean, it's kind of depressing to think about. But like the other week in um, an interpretation of the New Testament course that I'm taking, the professor pointed out how precious it is to have that passage in Luke when Mary and Elizabeth talk to each other because it's arguably one of only two passages in the Protestant Bible that passes the Bechdel test, um, with the other one being the conversation of uh, Naomi with Ruth and Orpah. Um, and of course, we might make some arguments for a few other places where women are speaking in a mixed company of men and women, maybe. Um, but those are still rare moments. Um, so like, that's just sort of an indication of how rare it is to have this kind of thing. Uh, in, it's rare in most media today, um, which is why I'm, I'm emphasizing like how much this Bechdel's. Um, and to think about, you know, it's important to think about how this might affect uh, the supposed target audience, the young girls. Um, the effect of having all the major characters be female is that, like we see, like we saw with the discussion of the different types, they're all female 
in different ways. So there's not just one or maybe two characters who do all the work of representing femininity in its entirety in the show, like there often would be in a, a show or a movie. Um, so just by the setup of the show, it, it's normalizing female interactions that aren't centered on men. And it's also showing multiple ways of being feminine. Um, so, of course, for audiences beyond young girls, this is also reinforcing the idea that there's not just one femininity. So women aren't just all one character. And that's the thing I really like. And uh, as a possible positive, really positive aspect of the show. Um, and with that, we get this depiction, like we've been talking about, of the community, this privileging of the mostly uh, very strong majority female community. Um, that's something we talked about a little bit in episode 33 when we were looking at Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Um, so we're there... 20 minutes in, Marie. Wrap it up. Oh, sorry. Um, well, just to say that uh, the the... The idea of having this this strong female community um, where the women rely on each other and like you're talking about, aren't tearing each other down and aren't depicted as just competing with each other and trying to appeal to men um, is important there. And also the, the uh, in season one, it's it strikes me that there's this lack of uh, heteronormativity because heterosexual couples are nearly invisible. Um, as well as heterosexual romantic plot lines. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think there's only two instances of these gestures towards heterosexual romance um, from this season, and we're looking at both of them, uh, one in episode 19, um, where we have Spike's dreams of rescuing Rarity um, as her knight in shining armor, and uh, one in episode 26, where we have Rarity's fantasy of snagging a prince at a ball. Um, but neither of these things actually happen, so that's, you know, that's, a st that's a way that these gender expectations are being played with. This is in contrast to a lot of material you would think of being marketed to uh, young girls, to so like Disney princesses, that sort of thing. Um, so that was also really interesting to me, too. Um, so uh, I think that changes maybe in some later later seasons. But okay, let's, um, let's move on now to then the, the reading section, where we'll have some more detailed discussion of episodes uh, 6, 19, and 26. Um, so why don't you start with uh, episode 6, Victoria? Sure thing. Uh, episode 6 is called Boast Busters, um, and as its title suggests, uh, it's about bragging um, and about learning humility. Uh, so the catalyst for the action is the arrival of a new pony in Ponyville. Uh, her name is Trixie. She is a magician, and uh, she brags about her magic skills um, particularly annoyingly in that she always refers to herself in the third person, uh, which is just an obnoxious thing to do. Um, so a lot of the other ponies are upset about her shoving her magic in their faces all the time. And so Spike and the other ponies, uh, Spike, who is, is not a pony, he's a small dragon of some kind, um, and twi he's Twilight Sparkles like familiar slash assistant. I'm not really sure how to call what he is. Uh, anyway, Spike and the other ponies 
try to get Twilight Sparkle, who is the most magically talented, as Heather said, of the the main six, uh, to compete with Trixie to, to show her up, because Trixie uses magic to humiliate other ponies, um, most notably Rarity and Applejack. She puts them in some kind of uh, physically... Um, harming situations. She ties up um, Applejack and turns Rarity, who's who's really proud of her beauty, turns her hair green um, and ugly. So she embarrasses them in public. Um, she also is really boastful about other accomplishments, says that she has defeated an Ursa Major, which is like a big, scary bear monster. Uh, so... Because Trixie says she has done this, these other um, minor characters summon uh, an Ursa Major to Ponyville, um, and then we get a kind of pony who cried wolf situation. It becomes clear that Trixie has lied, um, and then when everyone is in danger from this bear monster, Twilight Sparkle lulls the Ursa, which we actually find out is just a baby, an Ursa minor and not an Ursa major, um, to sleep in a a really adorable sequence with a a lullaby and a giant bottle of milk, and saves the day. Um, Then she kind of ties a bow on the episode with a moral. She learns that um, using your talents is not always showing off. that sometimes it's appropriate to exhibit your talents in the right context, especially when you're standing up for your friends. So that's uh, that's pretty much the gist of the episode. Um, I like the nuance of it. I like the idea that, like, because I often I, I think that girls are are socialized to not be publicly good at things, to to kind of be. Uh, be scared to stand out in that way. Um, I remember being, I don't know, 11 or 12 um, and and getting answers wrong in math class on purpose because I I thought that um, people wouldn't like it if I I got them all right and I didn't want to stand out in that way. So um, I I really like the idea that um, she first thinks that you can't show off what you're good at at all, but eventually learns um, that just being good at something is not bragging, um, that, that bragging is something different. What do you guys think about this episode? Other thoughts? Yeah, so that's this is a good example of both the sort of subversion of uh, our gender norms um and uh, nuance um that heather is mentioning earlier like heather what what do you think about this episode yeah well i i really liked what victoria said um about the way this episode makes a distinction between it's okay to be good at something in public and that doesn't mean that you're being boastful or bragging um i kind of like though that it also it also does uh shoot down a certain type of public performance. And I feel like that sometimes even as girls are socialized uh, not to be good at things in public because it might make other people not like them, uh, there's also this other sort of pressure uh, to be performers and to be good at particular kinds of entertainment and that that is our function 
as women. Um, and, but that can actually mm. be quite corruptive on a personality, which is what has happened to Trixie. Um, by the way, uh, it, Trixie comes back in a later episode and is in fact redeemed and is welcomed into the circle of friendship. So just oh. throw that in there. Oh, good. Also, that makes me feel bad about like how much I really hated her. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on then to episode 19. Um, what do you think? Uh, give us a little summary and what you think of that, Heather. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, episode 19, Dog and Pony Show, is one of my favorite uh, My Little Pony episodes, partly because I can't ever quite make up my mind uh, just what I think about it. But the, the plot is that Rarity, who owns a, a fashion boutique and is herself sort of a designer and seamstress extraordinaire, is commissioned by a celebrity pony to uh, design a series of outfits, and each one is to be encrusted with gemstones. Uh, so Rarity sets out on a gemstone-finding mission. Uh, fortunately for her, in Equestria, precious jewels are all over the place, just beneath uh, sort of the surface of the ground. And so she takes Spike with her, and she's out searching for, for jewels to complete this project. And while they're out, um, she's, she, Rarity is a unicorn which means she has a magic horn and she uses her magic to find the gemstones. And while she's out uh, doing this, she is spotted by a gang of dogs who are also searching for jewels and they kidnap her in order to force her to use her magic to locate uh, jewels for them. Now Spike escapes and he goes back to Ponyville, which is the town where they all live, and rounds up Rarity's friends to go on a rescue mission. And so the friends, you know, take off and they're galloping frantically uh, back to sort of the gem finding fields. Uh, and they encounter a, a lot of difficulty in being able to go underground, which is where these dogs live and operate and, and find Rarity. And the whole time that they're fighting to get to her, they are imagining how Rarity must be suffering because she, she is the delicate pony. She's the one who loves beauty, who does not like to get dirty, right? Who has a hissy fit if her hoof manicure gets scratched. Um, Spike, in particular, who has a sort of a, a long-standing crush on Rarity, is uh, really concerned about what's happening to her. But he also gives in to uh, this temptation to imagine himself as her rescuer. And in one sort of particularly humorous daydream he's having, uh, Spike, who is a very puny little dragon, imagines himself sort of as this large, uh, magnificent creature with uh, an appropriately muscled chest uh, charging in to save the Lady Fair. Well, when the ponies finally catch up to Rarity and her captors, uh, they discover that Rarity has been doing just fine on her own. Uh, and she has been using uh, what we would think of, I think, as perhaps... Uh, I don't know. Feminine wiles is not the right word because that implies seduction and that's not what she's doing. Uh, but she has been using a combination of bossiness, whining and crying to drive these dogs out of their skins. And so by the time her friends show up to rescue her, uh, her captors are actually begging to have her taken away. And what's really interesting to me is that uh, these are traditional, stereotyped, 
negative feminine traits, right? Women use tears to get their own way. They're, 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 they nag people. Um, they're, they're whiny, right? They're not tough. Uh, but in this episode, those traits are portrayed as, as positive, as rarity and using them intelligently in order to protect herself. And there's absolutely no blame attached to her for this whatsoever. And I, I just, I kind of go back and forth in my mind about what I think about this. So I'm really interested to hear uh, what Victoria and Marie have to say. Uh, so I'm about to utter a sentence I never in my 30 years of life thought that I would say. Uh, this episode of My Little Pony made me think of French feminism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, it reminded me of um, everybody get out your Christian feminist podcast bingo cards uh, Helene Sixou's The Laugh of the Medusa um, the, the sort of central idea of which is um, women a, as a way of regaining their uh, the ownership of their bodies and their freedom um, can kind of lean into madness and and take the negative um, the negative traits that the male world assigns to them and say uh, you think I'm a crazy woman okay I'm gonna be a crazy woman and it's gonna be awesome and freeing and empowering uh, so this episode made me think of that because she she gets in this situation where they think it's going to be really easy to um, to kidnap her and kind of bend her will to theirs um, and 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 her response I I think is you know you you think I'm just going to be some um, crying, whining woman, okay, well, then I will, and see how much you like it. Um, I, I agree, Heather, with, with you saying that it, it's, a, it's concerning that, that that isn't addressed in a deeper way, um, or, or that it isn't um, sort of more deeply marked as um, this is something that was maybe okay in that circumstance, because they um, second-guessed her abilities but would not be okay in other circumstances like um, like the the nuance that was present in the previous episode we discussed but uh, I, I did think that that was um, pr pretty interesting if if a bit problematic yeah like both of you I I wasn't I'm not really exactly sure what to do with that aspect of it though um, I did find it interesting that we have these extremes of a performance of femininity being deployed as a tool for nonviolent protest really so it's this, it's a strategy of protest um that yeah that was i don't really have too much more on that episode but that that was a fun uh, thing for me there um but let's move on then to episode 26 uh where uh we have the season finale um it's, it's titled the best night ever so in this episode, we have the ponies attending the Grand Galloping Gala, which is the social event of the season. Every pony wants to be there. Um, it was established in the episode The Ticketmaster earlier on in the season that all of the main characters dream of going to this ball in Canterlot. So they're really excited about it. Um, they all have their different, their different goals to fulfill there. So Twilight wants to 
um, catch up with her mentor, Princess Celestia, and Pinkie Pie wants to party, of course. Uh, Fluttershy wants to meet all the animals in the famed palace gardens. Rainbow Dash wants to fan pony it up with the Wonderbolts, this uh, team of uh, Pegasi who are her heroes. Um, Applejack wants to sell her many apple themed concessions to ponies waiting to get in, and Rarity wants to woo the eligible nephew of Princess Celestia. Um, so the ponies go on into the gala with high hopes, but course as the night progresses each of their plans are frustrated so you know like princess celestia is too swamped with guests to talk much with twilight and Pinkie pie runs into some class differences which is a whole other topic um shy finds that the animals are even shyer than she is and rainbow dash can't really keep the wonderbolt's attention um and applejack of course doesn't sell too much because there's free food at the party um, and Rarity, um, most importantly, I think, for what we're looking at here, finds out that the, the royal nephew is really this royal jerk. Um, so throughout the whole time at the gala, too, uh, the ponies, the main six, are ignoring Spike's hope for the night, which is that he wants to have fun with them all as a group and show them some of his favorite spots in Canterlot. Um, so... As the episode progresses, the night only gets worse as each of the main six goes to some sort of extreme measures to try to achieve their dream at this ball. Um, and it ends up with comical destruction of the ballroom and consternation among the party goers. And they, the main six flee off into the night and find Spike dejected in his favorite canterlot donut shop. Um, so there... They sit around and uh, relive their experience. Princess Celestia shows up to say that actually it all ended up all right because she was hoping that they would enliven the ball. Um, so it's not really a tragic ending in terms of the, the gala. Um, but the real happy ending is that the ponies with Spike decide that even though it had seemed like it was the worst night ever, it's now actually the best night ever after all, because they're all having fun together, which was you know, what Spike wanted to do in the first place. So that's sort of the, the lesson uh, from that episode. Um, and what struck me here is uh, in terms of the subversion of gendered narratives is how this episode is uh, relying on Cinderella as its uh, background te text that it's replying to, and I mean uh, the Disney film particularly, not just the fairy tale. Um, and it's referenced uh, generally in this excitement about going to the ball and Rarity's hopes for finding the Prince Charming. Um, it's referenced directly in a few scenes with uh, Twilight turning her, using her magic to turn an apple into a coach and mice into horses, and um, Rarity losing a slipper as she's fleeing the ball. Um... But these uh, these references to Cinderella are you know, only put out there in order to be undercut. So, like, the mice run off. Um, and also, of course, turning mice into horses is kind of weird in this world. <laughs> um, and we have some male ponies that take the place of the mice. Um, and when Rarity loses the slipper, we have this comment from Pinky uh, that... Oh, you lost the slipper, so now your prince will be able to use it to find you. Um, and instead of this being a good thing in the show, uh, Rarity is horrified, uh, runs back, smashes the glass, the, the glass slipper. So I think that moment really for me encapsulates what's going on in the episode and as a whole with the use of the Cinderella story, but also um, maybe what's going on in the season as a whole as it's dealing with these gender expectations by 
bringing up the expected narratives and then playing with them and undercutting them. Um, so also here, like uh, like I mentioned earlier, we have the centrality of the heterosexual romantic plotline being raised, but then it's ultimately denied with uh, this whole narrative strand of, of Rarity's story and uh, going to the ball, finding the prince is a jerk and so on. Um, and instead, we have the ideal of this mostly female community of the main six, along with Spike, being held up at the end. Um, so, what what did you guys think about this uh, season finale? Um, so, one of the things that I like the most about this finale, other than the riffs on the Disney princess stories, Snow White is also briefly touched on in the character of Fluttershy, uh, who, like Snow White, usually has the ability to charm animals uh, frequently with her voice. And she actually sings like the little theme that, that Snow White sings in the, in the film and the animals all run away from her. And she ends up actually trying to kidnap them because she's so desperate to become their friend. Anyway, it's very funny, but, uh, but, but the bit that I, that I really like about this as a season finale is that um, Spike, who is the only regularly recurring male character, uh, is actually allowed to share in the moral authority of friendship, right? He's the one who remembers all the way through that what should be special about the night uh, is their bond and the time that we will spend, that, that we, they, <laughs> the main six and Spike, uh, will spend together. And I like that because it emphasizes that th although this is absolutely a female-centric show, and I love that about it, it's not, it does not privilege the, the feminine at the expense of the masculine, right? And men aren't somehow cut out of community. Uh, they aren't degraded in order to make the feminine bond stronger, which is what so frequently happens, right, when uh, in in sort of masculine-centric narratives where women are sort of deliberately effaced and, and set aside and downgraded as beings uh, in order to emphasize sort of the, the glory of masculine uh, friendship and unity. And so I, I really liked that, that this is an inclusive show. That's a great point. Um, what, what did you think of the episode, uh, Victoria? Um, I... I don't have a whole lot to add. Um, I think you've done a good job covering the the sort of Disney princess um, echoes, um, which I, I think are pretty interesting. And also kind of a bold narrative move, given that target audience-wise, I imagine there's a pretty huge overlap there. Um, so I, I could imagine that there are children who would would understand um, those those references, even if they're pretty young. Um, but I, I do want to say um, I I am glad that there was a, a fair amount of Spike in the episodes that we watched. He's pretty adorable. Uh, I, I like him a lot and, and find him really, um, really affable and charming. Uh, but I, I also wanted to ask a question since um, I, I haven't watched any episodes outside of the ones um, we, we agreed to watch to record this episode. Um, Marie, you, you keep talking about heterosexual relationships um, and, and that 
they are are not privileged. Um, are there any homosexual relationships in this show, or is it just not about romantic relationships? Because I I, I think that that's probably a, a distinction um, we need to make. Like that's that's two different things, right? Yeah, that's a good point. So um, what I'm thinking about, like the lack of heteronormativity, is just mostly like how much it's not about um, the uh, male-female romantic uh, relationships. Um, you could possibly make an argument for some like references to romance among female characters, maybe um, like uh, jealousy between a couple, like between Gilda and Pinkie Pie for Rainbow Dash or something like that. Um, but I think you're right that it's it's kind of not central um, in terms of like finding a one romantic partner is not central to uh, to the show, which in itself is you know kind of a, a challenge to to uh, heteronormative um, kind of approach to storytelling, which you'd often get in um, media. Like it's it's rare to have that absence. Sure, absolutely. Um, which is why, um, to to kind of prove that not all Disney princesses are terrible, um, which is why Frozen is is kind of a big deal too, right? Because it it does that that same sort of decentralization of of the romantic uh, mm-hmm. relationship. Yeah. Um, okay, so before we go on to our passing on section, then. Um, let's talk for a minute about bronies. So we read this article. Um, Heather, would you summarize it for us? And then we'll just give a few thoughts. Yeah. Uh, so just to uh, refresh everybody's memory, the title of this was uh, Bronies Are Redefining Fandom and American Manhood. Uh, and it, it covers um, this phenomenon of, of bronies who are mostly adult men who are friends, or sorry, fans of My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. Uh, they began online, uh, and they still, I think, probably primarily gather there. Uh, many of them are reluctant to identify themselves as fans of the show in uh, real life, or even in anything other than an anonymous identity online, uh, because they are harassed uh, very much, right? The show is is being seen as sort of contra American masculinity. And I think there's this idea that there's something uh, not normal about you if you're a man and you like this show. Um, But what's really interesting is that this community over the the several years that the show has been running has really exploded, Uh, not only virtually, but in actually in the real world. There are now Uh, brony meetups that you can attend. There are huge brony conventions that sort of celebrate every aspect of the show. Uh, And what I found uh, very interesting was that the article suggests that what brings these uh, these men together is not just sort of a literal appreciation of the show, uh, but a belief in the values behind it, values like friendship, kindness, and generosity. Uh, which in the context of the article are then assumed to be values not part of traditional American masculinity. 
Um, and, and the article uh, goes on to make the claim that this is reflected in the charity work that Brony communities are becoming known for doing. They do a lot of fundraisers uh, for various uh, kinds of families and, and organizations in need. Um, overall, the article suggests that Brony's uh, mark a change in the way that American masculinity is perceived uh, and that it's okay for men uh, even men who are in other ways sort of very traditionally masculine, right? Brawny, straight, sort of strong, silent type men's men. Uh, it's okay for them to like My Little Pony and the values that it represents. Yeah, and there was, uh, that's a great summary. Um, and there's one quote from uh, a point in the article where, where the author was quoting Lauren Faust that I liked, where she said, my Little Pony might be opening some people's minds about what is acceptable in behavior for men and what it means to be a man and whether or not being sensitive and being caring is part of being a man. Um, so uh, perhaps like you're saying uh, with this valuing of these traditionally feminine virtues represented by the Stones of Harmony, um, we we can see a revision in um, some people's ideas of what American masculinity should encompass, um, which you know, seems pretty positive to me. Um, what about you, Victoria? Um, yeah, I, I think that's true. I think um, we live in a society that still often thinks... Um, not just that masculine is not feminine, but that that feminine things are bad or worse, and that masculine things are default or normal um, in a lot of situations. And so I, I do think it's interesting um, that um, that the the men in, in this subculture are um, are valuing these traditionally feminine. Um, traits and and virtues and that's you know it's it's good for boys to learn that like to be like a girl or to be feminine is is not necessarily bad and even more than not necessarily bad like can be good and helpful you know compassion is good loyalty is good empathy is good um they they teach you how to treat your fellow humans as as whole people um so that's that there's definitely um a, a lot of social value there and um and and to kind of piggyback onto that an, another article that i was reading um that if i can find it again i'll stick it in the show notes too um mentioned that my little pony friendship is magic also has a really huge following of um autistic adults or adults on the spectrum um, because it sort of explains social situations to them and, and helps them understand um, how to relate to other people in kind of balanced ways. So uh, I, I thought that was really cool and interesting and again kind of a way that this show that on the surface can seem sort of really shiny and plasticky and childish um, could actually be um, pointing out a, a lot of really helpful social goods. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I hadn't heard uh, about that aspect of the demographics before. That's really interesting to think about. 
Um, okay, one last thing before we move on to the, our recommendations. Uh, in terms of, in, in relation to this being the Christian Feminist Podcast, I was wondering, do you have any final thoughts on any sort of relationship to Christianity that we should that we can sort of comment on in the show, like uh, especially perhaps um, are there possible Christian objections to this being a show for children um, or what, what should we think about that? I mean, I guess there are people somewhere who probably object to the fact that the early episodes are so mythology heavy and so magic heavy. Um, I, I don't, I mean, people can raise their kids however they want, I guess. But that seems like kind of a silly argument to me. Um, yeah, I don't really have that much to say here. Yeah. I, I, I would hope that um, perhaps even parents sort of normally leery of fantasy because of occult associations would really take a look at this show and think about how it's put together because the magic in the show is rooted in virtue. Right. The power comes from those those virtues that the ponies represent. Right. Honesty, loyalty, generosity. Uh, in fact, some of what we would call the fruits of the spirit. And so I think that that's that's really quite a very Christian thing to have is a show where people are empowered by practicing virtue and, and magic. Right. As kind of the capstone thinking back to those, those first two episodes and the, the Stones of Harmony, magic is uh, kind of the, the capstone that brings all of the others together, right? That is, it's fueled by those other virtues. Uh, and so I, I think you could make an argument, right? Not that My Little Pony is Christian, but certainly that it can harmonize uh, with a Christian point of view. That's a, a really interesting point about the fruits of the spirit. I uh, I hadn't thought about that. I I was thinking about um, the the sort of the idea of the body of Christ and that that we all have um, sort of different parts. Some people are eyes and some people are hands, etc. Um, and and that that's fine and they're all equally important and they come together to make this whole. Um, I I was thinking of the the stones of harmony working in a not dissimilar way um but again i i would echo you saying not that it is a christian show but it is a show that could possibly line up with a christian worldview of some kind yeah those are great points um i like the comparison of the you know the stones of harmony both to this diversity in the body of the church um and to the the fruits of the spirit particularly and, and thinking of um, the fruits of the spirit as perhaps virtues that are often coded as feminine is a whole uh, interesting direction to go as well, which would be perhaps something to talk about in another episode. Um, okay, so let's move on now to our final section of the show where we'll give our recommendations to listeners for things to read or to watch. Um, Heather, let's hear your recommendation first. Right. Well, um, aside from recommending all seasons of My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, uh, I also wanted to recommend a book called The Penderwicks by Jean Birdsall. This is a children's novel. Um, I think I forgot actually to double check the publication date. I think the first one in the series uh, came out in 2005, maybe. Uh, but it is um, the, the first one is simply called The Penderwicks, and it's about four sisters 
and just kind of the the ordinary slash magical adventures of their daily lives. Uh, and like My Little Pony, uh, the Penderwicks kind of embody a variety of, of different ways to be a girl. Uh, and certainly they embody the, the virtues and the community of sisterhood, the importance of loyalty to each other. And like My Little Pony, uh, it's not an exclusive femininity, right? There's space in their circle uh, for men as and for boys as well as for girls. So it's it's absolutely charming, and I cannot recommend it enough. Oh, I really have to read that. I hadn't I haven't really heard about that before, but it sounds really interesting. Um, what's your recommendation, Victoria? My recommendation is um, a, a bit of a throwback, um, also kind of a shout out to, to the bronies um, in, in terms of their bending norms of masculinity. Uh, I am recommending the song William Wants a Doll from uh, the Free to Be You and Me album, um, which came out, I think it was 74, maybe 73. Um, Marlo Thomas and a bunch of other 70s celebrities put together this album of um, progressive songs teaching children that um, social roles aren't static and that um, girls and boys can do the same things if they want. Um, and that we are free to be you and me, as the title suggests. Um, William Wants a Doll is a song about, as you might have guessed, a boy named William who would like a doll for his birthday. Um, his father objects to this um, and offers to get him a variety of other things, um, balls and bats and whatnot, and eventually William's grandmother um, buys him the doll that he wants and says that it's perfectly fine for him to have it because, um, after all, he's going to have to be a father someday, and so those skills will be useful to him. So masculinity is multifaceted, and uh, it's fine for boys to play with dolls or ponies, as the case may be. Yes. <laughs> um, so my recommendation is just lighthearted and just brief um a video that probably some of you have seen already where uh Patton Oswalt went on Conan and was explaining the world of My Little Pony and it's just hilarious so if you google Oswalt Conan and My Little Pony it'll come up but it'll be linked in the in the show notes too um and a side note um Oswalt guest stars in a recent My Little Pony episode that's about comic cons so it's a little bit meta and you think of the there being conventions for My Little Pony um it's not for My Little Pony in the episode but it's sort of referencing the fandom culture um so that's a lot of fun too that yeah. is amazing <laughs> I want to watch that right now I did yeah, not know the, that that exists it's the the latest episode, I think. Um, the latest episode that's on Netflix right now, anyway. Um, okay, so thanks, Victoria and Heather. And thank you, Heather, especially for agreeing to join us on this episode and suggesting this topic. It's been a lot of fun for me, and I'm going to be sure to watch some more My Little Pony. Um, and thank you, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. 
The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison, and, and Elizabeth Brimner is our intern. Uh, for Heather Neal and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, I'm Murray Hawes. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss a theory of Christian feminist pedagogy. So until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>